Hello, I'm Laura Castleton, U.S. Head of Portfolio Construction and Strategy at Janus Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janus Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of brighter futures for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. Live from the NASDAQ market site overlooking New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money, the big show. I am Dominic Chu in for Melissa Lee tonight. Tonight's trader lineup, you've got Dan Nathan, Guy Adami, Karen Feinerman, and Brian Kelly, BK himself, tonight on Fast Stocks soaring to record highs, as you're seeing there, with the Dow closing just a hair below the 35,000 mark. And Wall Street's biggest bull sees even more gains ahead. Jonathan Golub of Credit Suisse will tell us where he sees the next big opportunity for your money. Plus, a marvelous move for Disney today. Shares jumping more than 4% to close out the session. We'll tell you what sent investors streaming yeah into this stock i went there and later on guy is taking the mound to pitch his next big idea there's the mystery chart why he thinks big gains are signed sealed and delivered for this particular transportation stock we'll bring you that name but we start with a big bank bonanza look at that q2 earnings season kicks off tomorrow with reports from jp morgan chase and goldman sachs as well coming before the opening bell And just look at how these stocks have performed since Thursday's sell-off. Goldman, up 6% in two sessions. That's way better than the bounce in the broader market. But one of our traders says this recent rally is giving her pause heading into the earnings reports. We're talking, of course, of Karen Feinerman. So as we take a look at this setup, what do you think it means? Do you like the strength going into these earnings reports? Well, I like the strength, except that so much of the response to earnings is about how high the bar was going into earnings. So, you know, GDP Morgan, for example, was very out of favor as recently as Thursday, and the stock was, I don't know, 150. So now it's significantly higher, right? A five and change percent move. That's a lot for JP Morgan. So the bar is higher, and I think that they'll probably come out with pretty good earnings. We know that the net interest margin will be under pressure, and more so after the quarter closed, even as bond rates went down. We know the capital markets activity was good, and that trading was good, and bank- banking was good, and advisory asset management was also good. But I think the market may think, all right, those are more sort of one-offs as opposed to the net interest margin and the lending business, which is their true business, and that was weak. So I'm not, I'm not selling stock at all. I am long banks, Bank of America, J.P. Morgan, Citibank, and Wells. Each sort of has a different uh, attraction for me. But um, it's unfortunate that they ran up so high on nothing going into earnings tomorrow. So what I really want to hear is loan growth. That's going to be the most important thing. And, uh, you know, I always love to hear Jamie Dimon talk anyway. Uh, I think a lot of folks like to hear Jamie Dimon talk. I I mean, Guy, I I turn to you here because the setup is something that a lot of traders are watching right now. It's also about whether or not this kind of financial momentum can continue. It's probably at this stage still the second best performing sector in the S&P 500, second only to energy. And we know where energy came from about a year or so ago. So do the big banks deserve the kind of momentum that we've seen traders put into them over the course of the last, say, six to nine months? 
Yeah, I, I believe they do. And by the way, when Karen talks about, first of all, you should listen to Karen all the time, specifically when she talks about banks. And I'll give you sort of anecdotal evidence. In November, October, November, when Wells Fargo was universally hated, uh, I was one of those people, by the way. I think the stock was trading 23 and a half, 24. She stepped in and said, you know, it doesn't make any sense as the stock is down here. You could see what the move has been subsequently. So listen when she says she's somewhat cautious going in. I understand that caution, but I will say I still think there's some, t- some tailwinds here for the banks. And I understand J.P. Morgan. I'm not as enthusiastic as to listening to Jamie Dimon as Karen is, but that's what makes markets. But <laughs> the two names that stick out to me, City and Earnings on Wednesday. And, you know, every time Citibank gets down to about 85 percent of tangible book, which it recently did when it traded 66, that's been a bottom. I think you'll see tangible book come in around 77 and a half or so. And I think it trades there. And Blackstone, which Dan will correctly point out, is not a bank. But it is a financial stock made a new all-time high today. They report next Wednesday, I believe. So, so I'm going to look to my right yeah. right now because, because it's so nice to be here at NASDAQ market site, just more than six feet away, socially distant from, yeah, right. from Dan. And, and, and I'm going to take this opportunity because I can look you right in the eye and say, do you like it? The asset managers were a big trade today. I mean, you look at Invesco, made some strong moves today. BlackRock, all-time high. Absolutely. So here's the deal. Guys that listen to Karen on banks, listen to the guy on Blackstone. He's been pounding the table saying to buy that thing on every dip. So kudos to you, Guy Dami. I know that you know what that means. Um, I just say this about Citigroup. I'd take a a little... um, Listen, I disagree with Guy there. Um, This stock has massively underperformed the group this year. It's up 12% of the year. Many of those banks are up between 24 and 45% or so. There's something going on there. And also when you talk about, I think Karen laid out the setup pretty good. Not great with some of the ones, the investment banks in particular, that have shown grid relative strength to the money center banks. Um, I think Goldman and Morgan Stanley are both up at least 40% on the year. And they look like they are literally going to take out their new highs on any good news. That being said, we've got a lot of good news. We've gotten um, the buybacks. We've gotten the dividend increases. We've already heard some minor downgrades to that uh, loan activity. I think uh, Jamie Dimon said recently they're seeing a teeny weenie bit of loan growth. That's not great. So you're seeing deposits up. You're seeing rates that came in. Um, That probably does not speak too well for Q3, um, in my opinion. I think that we've seen a big surge in Q2 of some capital markets activity. I suspect that slows down a bit. And then we start getting into difficult comparisons for the back half of the year. So I am not that excited about banks here. I mean, BK, so so Mm -hmm. I want to bring this up because we just showed all of our viewers and listeners who can't see it out there. The chart went up that we just saw was the S&P 500 Regional Bank ETF. The reason why I want to bring this into the discussion is because interest rates have been at the center of a lot of the market volatility we've seen as of late. And it's because of those moves in 10-year Treasury yields that we've seen regional banks react perhaps even more so. I would say this, as, as you approach, BK, this bank earnings season, how much more of a tell about the American economic recovery will the regional banks be tied to interest rates than the money center banks or the investment banks like Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley. Yeah, I think that's a great point, Dom. I mean, if you look at regional banks, it is all about that net interest margin and all of loan growth. So what you want to see is you want to see the regional banks say, hey, listen, you know, we think the worst is behind us on the bond market. You're starting to see the curve steepen a bit. um, And we're actually seeing some demand for loans. That's the real key here. Does the American public demand loans? Do they want to borrow money? Because that's a vote of confidence. If you go out and do that, you feel like your job's going to be okay. You're going to be you're going to be spending it on something. So that to me is the real key. Now, 
Ahead of that, we also have CPI coming out, which could move rates as well, which would impact the regional banks as well. But if you're trying to get a read on what's going out there, I think Karen had it spot on. It's all about loan growth right now because everything else might be as good as we get. Yeah, I, I don't mean to kind of go away as far away from New York and Wall Street as we can, but think about what China just did. And, and BK, you were talking about it on Friday's show. That reserve cut on Friday, and you think about if you're anticipating what some of these bank CEOs are going to say about the back half of the year, you know, at, at this stage of the recovery, I, I would be a little careful here. I'd curb your enthusiasm, because if you look at the way that China's recovery, and they supposedly kind of recovered sooner than us, the fact that they are easing again, I think, is really interesting. So to me, again, I think we have difficult comparisons. I think there's a a lot of good news in it. I think you really want to keep an eye on what the, the pace of China's recovery is, specifically what they're doing with their bank reserves. So, so Karen, uh, can I bring this back to you? I mean, you, you kick this thing off. As we talk about the leading indicators for this particular season, I mean, it's been a great point that, that Dan has just made. We've been looking towards the Chinese economy, the Chinese markets as a leading indicator, not because they're better than us per se. I mean, we know that they're not. It's more that the idea that they came out of this quicker than we did. So we, it was a blueprint. If you're looking towards the financials there and what, what the regulatory crackdown for big technology is and everything else, does it tell you anything at all, maybe nothing, about what's happening here with the U.S. banking system? Are we going to follow them into some kind of stalling out in the, in the U.S. economy overall? Uh, that, that's the trillion-dollar question. I think we're still in the, you know, the, the sort of reopening binge. So I think we've got a little ways to go. I mean, China was, I don't know, four, five, maybe six months ahead of us. So if they're just stalling now, I feel like we've got a ways to go. And so I do think that we're going to see that loan growth. And I, I, and I think banks will be the beneficiary. But I, I also think that it's some of the things that are good about the economy, consumers having a lot of money, that's not so great for banks if their credit card balances are low. Those are great margin products. So we want those credit card balances to actually tick up. That would be good. So I'm optimistic that they'll have good things to say, but I'm not so optimistic about how the market will react to good earnings. All right. So, so Guy, when you look at it from your standpoint, I mean, I look at it, say, hey, if I allocate money, it's to the, the money centers like J.P. Morgan or, or Citi or Bank of America. If it's the investment banks, Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, if it's the regionals like PNC, maybe U.S. Bank. Is there a place where you feel like you want to be ahead of the earnings season, the bet that you want to make? Which part of the banking spectrum will it be? Yeah, that's a good question. I would say insurers then, if you want to go down that rabbit hole, because I happen to think that rates are headed higher. BK mentioned that the best is over, the worst is over. What he was saying is in terms of the yields bottoming out, he thought that trade was probably over and yields are headed back higher. I agree. And we had Chris Verona on, on Thursday, and he pretty much has laid out what's transpired over the last uh, two trading sessions or so. So I think rates higher, higher rates should help the insurers. So to answer your question, in that overall financial bucket. Names like Pru, MetLife, I think are interesting here. All right, insurers. That's a good call there as well. All right, the Chartmaster says we may be in for a rude awakening when those bank earnings start to cross. Let's get to Cornerstone Macro's Carter Braxton Worth, CBW, for what he's seen in the charts. And Carter, I don't like rude awakening. So take us through what exactly is going to startle me besides my alarm that sometimes goes off at two in the morning. Exactly, Dom. You know, I think it's what Karen said. I mean, the results... Uh, are likely okay. Uh, hard comps notwithstanding, it's all about just one thing. 
uh, how the stocks react, which is to say there's no such thing as good or bad results. There are only results. And how a stock reacts to those figures, those results, determines whether it's good or bad. And exactly um, three months ago, it was a Monday, April 12th, this being uh, the 12th of July, we were setting up for the week of big bank earnings, and the numbers were darn good. And the stocks basically never followed through with relative performance peaking uh, that that month and have been uh, downward sloping ever since. I might have a few charts there. I don't know if you have them on the screen, but if not, uh, basically the thing to look at here is how uh, banks, despite making new all-time highs, the BKX index finally just in the past four or five months getting above its 2007 peak. That's a long slog just to get back. Uh, the relative performance continues to be uninspiring. And so the question is, is one really compensated for the, the risk and the beta associated with a very cyclical area of the market, financials and banks in particular, versus the market overall? And in principle, the answer has been no. Now, there are always ones that are better, and I have some favorites. If uh, one were to just look at the big financials reporting this week, I think BlackRock's going to be okay, Goldman, Morgan, Stanley. PNC also uh, a favorite among those reporting. Uh, but Citibank, on the other hand, Wells Fargo? Uh, not so good. Bank America does not look good. All right. So, so, so Carter, if it if it doesn't look good, what exactly could make it look better for some of your not so favorite picks? Are are you watching the charts behind the ten year yield that closely? Is that is that what's going to drive the trade for all of these? Does it is is that the tail that's kind of wagging the dog, or vice versa? Yeah, not so much. I mean, obviously, financials, industrials, all cyclicals have had a bit of a tough go here lately as rates have dipped as low as 1.25%. But here back at 1.35, 1.36, I think rates are sort of where they belong, if you can say such a thing, and that that's not really the, the driver now. Now it's going to be about um, comping against very hard uh, numbers, hard to comp against, uh, from the trading activity, and also just the, the general risk that uh, we are seeing some peak economic data, and, and by association, uh, maybe time to be, of course, more defensive and less cyclical. All right. So there's the call. Uh, of course, interest rates at the level they should be is going to be something there. Thanks very much for that, Carter. Now, we have a huge interview coming your way tomorrow. Be sure to catch our exclusive interview with Goldman Sachs Chairman and CEO David Solomon on the bank's earnings report. That's tomorrow, 3 p.m. Eastern time, right here on CNBC. A big exclusive coming fresh off that earnings report from earlier in the day as well. So a must-watch interview here coming up on CNBC tomorrow. Now, let's take a look at what's going to happen overall with the trade. Because Goldman Sachs is reporting, J.P. Morgan's out there. Dan, I'm going to look to you first because you're sitting right next to me, physically speaking. Yes, I am. Uh, among those stocks and then the two that come out the next day, Bank of America and Citi. It's money center or investment banks, two parts of the spectrum that are important. What's the favorite for you right now? Well, listen, DJ Soul is not coming on CNBC and laying an egg that morning. So uh, Goldman Sachs is going to have a good report, I suspect. And I think Carter laid it out really good what's expected and how good and how better than the comps. I think um, expectations for EPS across the whole group are up over 100% year over year. So expectations are really high. Um, I don't really love the money centers. I see some really bad action in Bank America, in Citigroup, and in Wells Fargo. I don't like any of them. So I guess I would lean towards Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs this week. All right, there's a trade for sure. Coming up now, taking over the NASDAQ 100, going for its ninth straight week of gains. But can big technology's big climb still continue? 
Wall Street's biggest bull joins us now in just a few minutes to break it all down. Plus, Disney's magic lighting up today on the back of some very strong box office results, the best since the pandemic started. We are going to dig into that trade when Fast Money returns after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to Fast Money. Magic is in the air for Disney. That stock, as you can see, they're up by over 4% on today's session. Let's get to Julia Borston with more on this very big move. It's a Dow component. It doesn't go up that much in a day very often. What's driving it? Well, Disney's Black Widow just reported the biggest domestic box office since before the pandemic began, $80 million dollars. Uh, over the weekend just here domestically. It also made another record. It generated over $60 million from selling the film to Disney Plus subscribers for $30. Now, it brings in nearly all of that revenue compared to the box office, from which it only takes about half of that revenue. Now, this is the first time a studio has ever revealed how much revenue is generated from digital digital distribution. And those two numbers, the box office and the digital, show that for Disney, the simultaneous release plan does seem to be working. I spoke to former TikTok CEO and Disney executive Kevin Mayer. He helped launch Disney+. Plus. It's great for Disney um, that they can put a film of that high quality, both in theaters and on Disney+, Plus, charge an extra price for it, take essentially much more of that revenue than they can take at a, from a theater. Those settlement rates in theaters are much lower than the net effective revenue they're getting for purchases on Disney+. Plus. I think it's a big positive. But the theater chains are trading lower today. AMC shares down nearly 8%. Cinemark down nearly 7%. IMAX shares losing about 3%. Cowan analyst Doug Kreutz saying it seems that the streaming window significantly curtailed Saturday and Sunday results. He warns, quote, the recovery of global box office still appears likely to be painfully slow and potentially permanently incomplete. Another fact to consider here, Disney managed to do so well with both Disney Plus subscribers and in theaters. That means that the studio will have the power negotiations with those theater chains going forward.
Tom. All right. That's a bunch of stuff to go through. Julia, thank you very much for that. Now, let's take a look at this Disney trade right now, because it is one where it's been stalled out for a little bit. And now it's kind of regained some of that mojo, that momentum. If you if you take a look at this and Brian Kelly, perhaps I'll start with you on this one here. This Disney trade has been about streaming for arguably years now at this point, this anticipation of and then kind of the momentum through the pandemic and everything else. Is this just the catch up trade or does this really catalyze that whole movement for streaming content and video going forward, competing with the likes of what we're seeing at the box office? Yeah, I think for Disney, this this is we're entering the proof stage, right? So we had this release of Disney Plus. Everybody bought it because they wanted to see Hamilton for the 47th time. And all of a sudden, they said there's nothing else on. There's no content. But then this weekend comes along, and you say, okay, well, if Disney has good content, they have multiple channels now that they can get it out on, and that Disney Plus channel is a significant revenue driver. So that is a big change from what we've seen over the last, I would even say, year with Disney. And so I actually think this is a big catalyst here. Disney's pretty much been going down to sideways since March. It's been the sleeping giant. And now that you have this proof positive that their distribution model works, I think Disney could uh, go on a nice little run here. All right. So, so, so Guy, if this Disney, we're showing right now the, the, the box office numbers split. The U.S. box office was an $80 million take. $60 million on Disney Plus streaming. You had to get the premiere access. I think it was like 30 bucks. I think, extra for you to stream the video there on its own. Is this a reason to be bullish on Disney, the fact that they were getting almost as much in terms of a big box office opening from at home versus just in theaters? I know that I would go see that theater or that type of movie in a theater physically itself. Yeah, and I'll leave that to you because, you know, there are a number of things I'd rather do, you know, comb my hair being one of them before I go to see whatever that movie was. I mean, it's not exactly Citizen Kane, but I'm not their target audience either. But is it a reason to be bullish? Absolutely. Brand just laid it out. If Tim were here, he would say this is sort of the flywheel effect that makes Disney so uh, valuable. And he's right. The only concern you have with Disney is valuation, because at current levels, you're talking about a stock that's probably trading at 38 times next year's numbers. With all that said, I think they report on August 12th, stock probably continues or starts this next leg higher into earnings. So it probably is a catalyst for the next move. I mean, Dan, it, we're showing it right here, the forward P.E., 50 times next year's earnings. That's what you're going to pay for every dollar of next year's earnings on this particular move. Is that too much to pay for Disney? Well, listen, Guy Adami's had this Netflix trade. He said down at 480, you buy it. Um, it's now 540 or so. And he was basically your point was that it's going to get re-rated to some degree, those percentage of the sales that are tied to that. But I guess it really is about the flywheel. I think when uh, investors look back 10 years from now and they look at the suite of just royalties that come from the Marvel universe, from the Lucas universe, and from the Pixar universe, it's going to be something that's going to be unmatched in uh, media history. And I'll just say the one thing. One of the biggest knocks on the multiple for Disney over the last year or so since the introduction of Disney Plus was the really cheap pricing. Now, this premium thing is really interesting. What it says to me is that all of a sudden they have the opportunity to lay out some tiered pricing, some different models where they're going to start getting um, better ARPU, at least here in North America for those sorts of things. So to me, I think what, you know, you said it was really unusual that they gave that number out. They gave it out for a reason. And I think it's a hint that we're going to see some different pricing going forward. And of course, they just announced a price raise for certain parts of that Disney Plus bundle as well. So pricing power there. Well, we are just getting started here on Fast Money. Here is what's coming up next. 
tech on a tear. The NASDAQ 100 going for its ninth straight week of gains. We'll break down what's next for this red-hot trade. Plus, bases loaded, bottom of the ninth. And it's all in Guy's hands. He's winding up for a fast pitch that'll be sure to deliver. We've got that and a lot more when Fast Money returns. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. All right, welcome back to Fast Money. It was a big day for the markets with the major indices all setting new records at the closing bell. And here is a staggering stat for you. The Nasdaq 100 is going for its ninth straight week of gains as the big tech trade takes off. And our next guest says there's still some momentum left in that tech rally. Let's bring in Jonathan Golub, chief U.S. equity strategist and head of quantitative research at Credit Suisse Securities. Jonathan, as long as I've known you, and it's been well over a decade now at this point, you've been relatively bullish on the markets and you've been correct. It's got to, though, end at some point. Why are you still so bullish? Well, first of all, you know, the, the markets are driven by, by one simple thing, that over time, earnings grow. And if you look at the stock market, which has been on fire for the last year, it is keeping almost perfect step with the earnings getting better. Valuations for all that the market's going up are not any higher now than they were a year ago. And that's the big story. And I continue to be confident. Now, so so if it is, is it the technology trade that's driving it? It, it is roughly, call it 27, 28 percent of the S&P 500. We've known that technology has been the big driving force behind the market for years now, arguably over now, a decade and a half. What exactly is the key component of the technology trade? Are they the primary engine of earnings growth that keeps the rally going? You know, Tom, I don't think so. I mean, if you take a look at what's going on um, this earnings season, um, crazy numbers. Uh, we're expecting 500%. Mind you, this is off of really easy comps, really bad you know, numbers a year ago. But the, in, in, um, in cyclical sectors, the banks are supposed to be up 100%. And technology is supposed to be up a measly 30 to 40%. Now, we actually think that the numbers are going to beat on each of those groups but the real sizzle right now has been in the more economically sensitive old economy um, companies. What's really driving the leadership in growth stocks and tech in particular has been weaker interest rates. So the risk here for this growth trade is not that they disappoint in earnings because they're going to shoot the lights out. The real risk is that interest rates start to rise again as a sign of confidence in the economy and they just do less well than some of these old economy value stocks. Hey, so, Jonathan, last time that the U.S. Uh, 10-year Treasury yield was at 135, the S&P 500 was just below 4,000, so we're up about 10% since there. So you said, obviously, a risk is higher interest rates. 
Where? Like, how much higher? Because, you know, we had 1.77 in late March. There was a lot of people saying that 2% should be something we get to in the not-so-distant future. Um, But if we got back up there, where should stocks go? Because, you know, here we are. We're down here, and stocks are 10% higher. First of all, I I didn't say that that higher interest rates were a risk for the stock market. What I said is they were a risk for growth outperformance. Um, so if we see um, if we see interest rates rise, that's that's a good sign. That means the economy is strong. The demand for capital is high that, you know, you know, and, and that will play out. Well, it just tends to play out better for value stocks. Um, what I expect to see is a very strong earnings season across the board. The fundamentals are better in value land. They're better in old economy stuff, in mining and metals and industrial companies and old-fashioned brick-and-mortar retail, all of those things are going to put up much better year-over-year earnings growth than anything we're going to see from big tech or tech in general. Um, So what you need to see in growth is good numbers, but an interest rate that's not rising. And that's kind of a a very narrow, tight, tight rope to walk, if you will. All right, narrow tightrope, but certainly a broader market rally is good for the overall scheme of things. Jonathan Golub, thank you very much. Let's trade this and, and, that, and talk a little bit about that value cyclical side of things. Karen Feinerman, uh, if you look at the economically sensitive stocks, the cyclicals, so to speak, they have been leading this pandemic recovery trade. It's the travel and leisure type things. It's the restaurant companies. It's airlines. It's also metals and mining, to Jonathan Golub's point. Is that what's going to drive things going forward? Is the broadening out of the market rally really that good? Can it continue to power things to new record highs? I think so. I mean, for me, the industrial, something like a United Rentals, I think there's room to go there. I think some of the retail, there's still, we still have some reopen trade for some of the retail. You know, uh, we're talking about um, back to school this year. I think it'll be gigantic. So I think there's still room to run there. I, I, to me, the fly in the ointment is a CPI that's out of control. Then I don't know what happens. Wait, 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 wait. Karen, what do you mean out of control? I thought this whole inflation story like, was, quote, unquote, transitory. Uh, it seems at the moment that I think the Fed's, you know, transitory description is working. But, you know, also I, I see a lot of sort of supply chain issues and demand that's unfulfilled. And, and so to me, that feels like it would pressure a lot of things, um, wages, but also other things that make up the CPI. A lot of companies have pricing power. And so if we see a CPI come in really hot, you know, I think we're looking at 0.4, I think is the expectation tomorrow. I think if we come up something hotter than that, like a 0.6, that's probably not going to be great for the market. All right. You know where people have been going because of that fear of inflation. By the way, the New York Fed, you know, survey result just came out earlier today and it shows that there is this expectation among consumers that, that the you know, inflation is going to pick up. I mean, I know that people have been, been, been guy going into metals and mining stocks. You've been one of those folks. You've talked about Freeport MacBaran in the past. Is that still a trade that you find works, given what you think the outlook for inflation will be? Yeah, I do, and I appreciate you watching CNBC's Fast Money each night at 5 p.m., Dom Chu, you, which you host from time to time. Yeah. Yeah, I do. And obviously, over the last couple of weeks, that's been painful. But that's the way these stocks trade. I mean, they do go up in a straight line, but they go down twice as fast. But I don't think by any stretch this resource trade is over. And I do think rates are going higher. I just love Jonathan's narrow tightrope. 
I mean, that's sort of like young rookie, but I've, you know, it's just I'm, I'm nitpicking <laughs> here in terms of the description. With that said, I, I'm in agreement. I think Dan will agree that the F MAGA complex that he coined probably rallies into earnings at the end of the month, and those stocks seem to be uh, Teflon at this point. But there will be a point when rates get to, I think, north of 175, where maybe some of these growth stocks become, um, they start to sort of feel the weight of higher rates. All right, the rate picture still in focus there. All right, coming up on the show, silver looking to go gold. As Reddit traders take aim, we'll break down where this metal, the silver one, is headed anyway. But first, our own Guy Adami is taking the mound to pitch his next big idea. He says this stock is ready to deliver some serious gains. We'll bring you that name. I've dropped a lot of hints there with Fast Money Returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. The transportation trade has been struggling as of late, but Guy Adami says this shipping stock is setting up for a big breakout. He's going to step up to the mound with his fast pitch. So Guy Adami, fire away. I love the power pitch, Dom. As to you, the folks at Power Lunch are not happy with us, but Federal Express is what we're going to talk about here. They reported, I believe, on June 25th, the knee-jerk reaction was to whack the stock. I think it traded down to 291 or so. But you will notice that the stock has traded really well ever since. Number one, that's a tell. Here are the three reasons that I like it. First, valuation. The current prices, it's trading about 13 times next year's numbers. In comparison, DCHU, UPS trades around 18 and a half. I'm not suggesting it should have the same valuation, but it certainly should be close. So valuation is number one. Number two, Improving margins, and you saw that in their ground, ground being the number two revenue uh, generator in the company. And number three, FedEx has a business update, I believe, on August 10th. I think they'll say wonderful things there. You know what? Say what you want, but this is a company that was doing everything wrong a year and a half ago. Well, they're doing everything right now. I think for whatever reason, the pandemic forced them to take a hard look at their business. The efficiencies are there, and I think it's going to manifest itself in the stock going higher. I can make a very compelling reason, uh, argument that this stock should be north of 350 based on valuations and some of the other things we talked about. All right. Over the last year, this is a stock that's up nearly 90 percent, but it has stalled out as of the last few months here. Karen Feinerman, step up and take a swing. Do you have a question for Guy on that particular move? I do. So, you know, there's an argument that the shipping space is crowded. How do you look at it right now? Well, it might be crowded, but you know what? There's still only two dominant players. So say what you want. There are other ancillary sort of tertiary people and guys and gals getting in. But FedEx and UPS are still the granddaddy of them all, to quote the great uh, Keith Jackson, if you recall, Dom Chu. So and they also have pricing power and something you and I talked about before the show. Say what you want, but the pricing power is there. Costs will go higher, but they've been able to pass it on. And you see in their margin improvement that it's working for them. So, yes, there are other players, but the two players that really matter still remain UPS and FedEx. And I think FedEx is just too cheap at these levels. All right, so the catch-up perhaps with UPS. All right, no more questions here. It's time to vote. Are you buying Guy's pitch on FedEx or not? Karen, we start with you. Yeah, well, he had me at hello. I, I love this company. I have a big position here. <laughs> Said yes. And the artwork. That nice guy. 
I had no idea that you had that That's kind of That's sadly the best ability. I can do. That is it's still the best I can do. It's Karen, terrible. it's better than I can do. So I'm, I'm just going to give you props for that right now. <laughs> BK, Brian Kelly, buyer or seller of that particular fast pitch. You know, for me, my concern here is that you don't have the pricing power, or at least this is as good as it gets because the space is crowded. So for me, I'm a seller of it at this point in time. All right, Dan Nathan, good, it's good, one of right, Dan Nathan. You saw this. Nancy handed me a purple and an orange marker. I know why. And I'm just too. going right in here. I'm, I'm buying FedEx. I'm buying by his pitch here. Um, I will tell you this, that there aren't too many stocks in this stock market where you have 16% EPS growth, trading at 14 times this year's earnings, and expected 12% EPS growth next year, 12, trading at 12 times. So it's a cheap stock. I think the technical set up really well. I think some of the catalysts that Guy named also work, so I like FedEx. It's not lost on any of us that you use the FedEx colors oh, you on your smart okay, board as well. Saying. Thank you very much for all the artistic ability there. All right. Well, the traders have spoken. Now it's your turn, America. Are you buying Guy's Fast Pitch on FedEx? Vote in our Twitter poll at CNBC Fast Money. That's the handle. We will reveal those results later in the show. And coming up, silver is looking to shine. Reddit traders are targeting the commodity in a big way. We are breaking down the action nest. Hi-ho, silver. Don't go anywhere. Fast Money is back after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. What you're seeing there is a chart of silver because Reddit traders are shouting hi-ho silver away. And one intrepid group thinks they can push that commodity to $1,000 an ounce. Uh, it's at 26 right now. Let's bring in Christina Partsanevelis with the details. Christina P., I, I don't know. How do you get from 26 to 1000 you corner the market. So this is a group of Redditors or a subgroup, and they're called the Silver Apes, Silver Stackers, or Wall Street Silver. And they have roughly 123,000 plus members, and they encourage each other to buy actual bars and coins of silver as a hedge against inflation. There's even another website that markets T-shirts that say cash is trash, silver is money that you can see on your screen right now. And they want to push up the price of silver. Yes, $1,000 is a steep uh, point, but they do want to see it climb high especially considering the spot price is around 26 bucks, like you mentioned today. Retail traders argue that there are more paper claims, such as derivatives, let's say, on silver than actual tangible silver itself in vaults. So in other words, if demand for silver increased, supply would run short and the price would surge. But the squeeze on silver, though, it does differ from the squeeze on companies like GameStop. There's a lot of silver out there and not as many silver short sellers to attack. So money managers have actually been net long positions on the metal since 2019, according to data from the Commodity Futures Trading Commission. If you think of the history of silver, humanity has been mining this stuff since we discovered picks and shovels, right? I mean, it's, you know, there's plenty of silver above ground. A little like gold, it doesn't get thrown away. Many in the Reddit community believe currencies are vulnerable, especially into the near future, and that physical investments are the way to go. They even helped push up the price of silver to a five-month high back in January. And according to the Silver Institute, demand for bars... Like this one I happen to find from our safe is expected to soar to 26% of total demand. That's up from 8% just last year. And one member of a group called Silver Apes told me he believes the market is manipulated by certain banks. And so that's why he's holding on to this stuff for a little bit longer. 
Wow, that's a flex there. She's got a bar of it. I've just got some like silver eagles and silver dollars <laughs> somewhere around the house in a shoebox. Christina P., thank you very much for uh, bringing us that silver trade. We appreciate it. Now let's trade it, guys, her bar and all. If you take a look at this, BK, I go to you for this first. Do you mm-hmm. believe that there can be any way that silver, we saw the squeeze back in, I want to say, February of this year. The squeeze got you to maybe like the 30, 31 level. A thousand is a far leap, is it not? A thousand is is a far leap from $26, absolutely. If I do the math, that seems to be a very big jump. Um, that being said, listen, you know, the, the Hunt brothers tried to do it back in the 70s, and, and it worked for a while. They cornered the silver market, and, and then all of a sudden, they, you know, the people came back and raised margins, and they went bankrupt. So, yeah, could you create a short squeeze in any commodity by buying it up? Absolutely. I, I like silver. I think you can get a breakout here. If I'm long silver at 26 and it goes to 35 or 40, I'm still going to be happy. So I don't think you need to think the $1,000 is your price target just to buy silver right here. All right. So at least a few options traders out there seem sympathetic to the silver apes cause. because They're betting big that silver could be about to surge nearly 20 percent to BK's point. So let's bring in Mike Coe. He joins us with the options action on this. Have you seen anything? Is there any activity out there that indicates, Mike, this could be a trade that gets you above that $30 level? Well, we did see above average call volume on the September COMEX Silver Futures. That's the most active futures contract, the front month for silver. We saw well over 4,000 of those trade overall. And the most active contracts where we saw calls outpacing puts by about 17 to 1 were the September 31 calls. We saw a little over 1,300 of those trading for about a dime. Buyers of those calls are obviously betting that silver could rise 18% or more by August 26. That, by the way, is when these options expire. And it's important to remember, 1,300 contracts may not sound like a lot in the context of some of the ETFs we see. But the important thing is that the futures themselves represent 5,000 ounces. So that's a multiplier 50 times as large as what you're seeing on equities. So, in fact, those 1,300 call contracts actually notionally represent more than the top three most active call contracts on SLV, which is the ETF that tracks it, and that traded about 70,000 near-dated call contracts today. So we are seeing some bullish activity, and we're certainly seeing more on the option side on the bullish side than the bearish one. All right, some options sizzler for sure. For more on options action, by the way, be sure to tune into the full show on Fridays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern time right here on CNBC. A lot of playing going on there, not just in silver, but elsewhere as well. Coming up in the show, shares of Virgin Galactic dropping in today's session despite company founder Richard Branson's successful suborbital test flight. We'll tell you what the company announced that has investors spacing out. Yes, I said it. And there's still time for the vote for Guy's Fast Pitch on FedEx. Head over to our Twitter poll, at CNBC Fast Money. That's the handle. We will have those results in just a few moments. Fast Money is back after this. Miss a moment of fast? Catch us anytime on the go. Follow the Fast Money Podcast. Welcome back to Fast Money. What you're seeing right there is a sneak peek at the Kramer cam. Jim is talking with the CEO of MongoDB. You can catch that full exclusive interview at the top of the hour on Mad Money with Jim Cramer coming up in just about seven minutes' time. Well, check out shares of Virgin Galactic falling hard in today's session, down by about 17 percent. 
despite founder Richard Branson's successful test flight to suborbital space. The company gearing up to sell as much as $500 million in its own common shares. So what do you make of it? I'll start here with you, Dan Nathan, next to me. What do you make of this secondary offering? It seems like you should do it, right? Hey, listen, give the people what they want, right? So this stock had gone from, in early May, below, I think, 20 bucks, maybe as low as 15, and as high as recently in the high 50s here. A lot of anticipation about this flight. It went off without a hitch. That's fantastic. It gives um, investors a little bit of a preview of what might be the commercial experience here, and there's not a better person than Richard Branson, I suspect, to kind of articulate that. All that being said, um, you know, this is basically a pre-revenue company. And with an $11 billion market cap heading into that, I couldn't see too many scenarios, especially with the Blue Origin flight coming in a week or so, where this was going to go well for them after the event. So to me, you could have looked at the options market. The skew in the calls, the demand for calls versus downside puts was off the charts. It was like 2x that of puts. Um, and that was telling me to me that uh, things were a little bit it off. It had to revert at some yes, point. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, so, so I got Karen Feinerman, does the space race interest you? Is there, is there something that gets you excited about whether or not Virgin Galactic is something that you want to buy on a 17% dip? Well, I, I, you know, I'm somewhat swayed. I'm the opposite of the Peter Lynch, buy what you like. I would so hate to go on space travel, this kind of flight. It's, so there's no way. But the thing that does interest me is ultra supersonic space travel. You know, I think United Airlines just placed an order for planes that can get you from New York to London in three and a half hours. That, to me, is interesting. It's interesting as a potential business. This is sort of a, no, not so interesting to me here. I have none, nothing in the space, no pun intended. Nothing in the space. All right, well, there's still time to vote, by the way, guys. Forget about Virgin Galactic for now. On Guy's FedEx Fast Pitch, head over to our Twitter poll at CNBC Fast Money. That's the handle there. We'll bring you the results and your final trades coming up right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. It's time to find out whether Twitter was buying Guy's Fast Pitch on FedEx. Let's take a look at this. And this pitch delivered. More than 57% of the voters are buying Guy's pitch on FedEx. So, yes, congratulations on that. It's now time for the final trade. Oh, look at this. Yes. Yes. Yeah, this is one of the voters. I'm so old. Not only do I have nieces and nephews, I have grandnieces. Bella, wave to Dom Chu. She voted, Yay, by the Bella. way. FedEx is both of our final trades. Right, Bells? Outstanding. Yeah, exactly. BK, what's yours? Uh, for me, it's TBT. Great risk-reward to bet on higher rates here. Karen Feinerman. Yes, for me, it's uh, GraphTech, ticker EAF for electric arc furnaces. All right. GraphTech and Dan Nathan next to me. All right. The viewers think they know me, but I haven't done this a long time. Spy. I'm not calling it top here, but I think spy puts look really interesting one month out here. Good way to protect some recent gains. Wow. Calling a near-term top, perhaps. All right, guys. Thank you for watching Fast Money. Mad Money with Jim Cramer is coming up in just a few seconds here. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Bye, Bella. Bye. <laughs> 